Good morning. Um, if, if I'm ever going too long, you now have a palm branch you can start waving in my face. Don't start yet. <laughs> I just started. Um, yeah, Palm Sunday is one of those great opportunities for us to celebrate. Um, we're coming to, we are at the end of our series on prayer and abiding. And I hope it's been an enriching series. God has certainly challenged me through this uh, season as I've come to recognize in myself and become more aware of my inconsistencies in my prayer life and my half-hearted attempts, while at the same time becoming more and more convinced of its utter necessity and its essentialness to the life of a disciple and for my growth as a disciple, not to mention the health of a church. Um, there has never been a healthy church that was not a praying church. The two have always come together. When you think of the different aspects of prayer, what tends to be easiest for you? Or what tends to be hardest? Adoration, thanksgiving, confession, petition, intercession. What are some of these elements? Uh, for me, there are seasons in my life when... Um, I've been so self-obsessed <laughs> that prayers of confession and petition, those were easy. Words like, Father, I need you. Father, I long for you. Father, please help me here or there. They just flowed out of me without effort. Whereas the prayers of intercession at that season of life and prayers of thanks, those were difficult. There have been times in my life where I was resisting God and I would happily pray, Lord, be with them, be with those people, or, but I would avoid adoration and confession. And now while we are, we are all unique, right? We all face prayer from a different personality. Scripture helps shine a light on all humanity and shows us that we have a lot in common. First, there is the tendency to not pray to God at all, to just not go to him in prayer. Sure, we might cry out when we're desperate, but when we're not desperate, how often do we turn to God in prayer? That's a first human tendency. The other tendency for us is that when we do pray, we make prayer all about us, all about me. Uh, it's just so easy for us to put all of that focus of prayer on ourselves. Uh, one day, the disciples, uh, they turned to Jesus and they asked a question that we are forever grateful they asked. They asked a simple question, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus' response in many ways was not a fundamentally different way of praying. He wasn't giving them a new prayer but what he was doing is that he was bringing all of the Old Testament, all of the ways of prayer, and he was bringing it together, distilling it down into its core components, organizing prayer and providing us with a framework, a model to model our life of prayer around, a framework for us to hold on to. And so how does that prayer start? For those of us who know we could join in, let's, we could say it together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name or thy name, depending on which era you grew up in. 
thy name, right? It's kind of powerful in its classic terms. Um, That initial opening statement, Jesus demonstrates for us something that is vital. Prayer begins with God. An intimate focus on the Father, a Father whose nature and character is hallowed. It's to be greatly revered. It is holy, sacred, blessed. Before anything else, Christian prayer is to the Father about the nature, character, and works of Father, Son, and Spirit, and for the Father. Prayer is to the Father. It is about the Father, and it is for the Father. And in making much about God in prayer, we are practicing one of the hardest elements, at least it is for me in my life, hardest elements of our faith. The practice of radical trust. That we turn our eyes towards God, giving Him all attention in prayer, believing that as we do that, everything else falls in order and is taken care of. It goes against the human instinct to say, me first, out of the way, I've got my things to say to you, I'm not interested in what you say to me. It pushes against that. But it is what is clear, not only in what Jesus says, but within all of Scripture, to the Father, about the Father, for the Father. J. Oswald Sanders says it this way, there is a supremely important lesson. If God is not given the chief palace in our praying, our prayers will be anemic. When our thoughts begin with him, love is kindled and faith stimulated. I like that. I need to hear that. My question for all of us is, do we believe that today? Is that your conviction? Do you deep down believe that as you turn your gaze off of yourself, your needs, your health, your employment, your spouse, your kids, your life, your everything, and as we turn our prayer first and foremost to the character and the nature of God, that everything gets ordered correctly, that our love is kindled and faith is stimulated? I believe it. I believe that, and yet, if you were to record the prayers of my day, the prayers of my life, you would notice that I, and maybe along with a lot of us, have a lot of room to grow in this area. So, here we have a promise. It's a a simple, beautiful promise. That if our prayer life primarily reflects the Lord's prayer, That if our prayers are first and foremost to God, about God, and for God, that if our prayer life overall begins with adoration to God's nature and character, then flowing out of that is the appreciation and thanks of his works. That if that's the order of our life and the order of our prayer, that our spiritual lives become big, they become strong, They grow, our faith deepens, our hope gets bigger and broader and wider, and our love is great. This is a promise that we see in Scripture. But 
as I've already mentioned, there is that great big problem that even in our prayer life, or even especially in our prayer lives, it is hard to be God-focused. It is difficult for our attention to go there, for it to start there, and for it to be sustained there for more than just a half second. For it to be longer than, dear God, you're good, now here's my list. It's hard. And this is the problem. We so often get stuck there. There are, however, tried, tested, and true practices that combat this problem. And one stands out among the rest that I see throughout Scripture. A practice rooted in the history of God's people. A practice written into God's Word. A practice shown to us by angels and apostles. Shown to us by Miriam that we see in Exodus 15. says this, Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all of the women followed her. With timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Or shown to us by Mary, mother of Jesus, in Luke 1. She cries out. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. A song that has become known as the Magnificat. And so, what do we do? How do we go after this? How do we solve this natural challenge in our lives? We sing. We, we worship. We allow music and rhythm and harmony and melody and movement to help us to be a vehicle in our life of prayer and in our life of adoration. Now, there are many ways for us to elevate the glory and adoration of God. But for today, the focus lends itself, particularly when we see in the passage that we read earlier, that there is a powerful role in the declaration, in the singing, in the music of worship to help us in our prayers of adoration and thanksgiving. It plays a powerful role in ordering our prayers and keeping us in a place of adoration longer than just half a second. So today is Palm Sunday, and the people in Jerusalem that day, they got it right. Right? They, they, they had their instincts were correct. What happened? When Jesus approached Jerusalem, we'll take a brief look. Luke 19.37, when he came near the palace, or came near the place, I should say, where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I remember as a kid being given palm branches and waving them around and then once in a while I would get a real one and I would discover those branches are kind of sharp. <laughs> Um, I remember when I was in college and we were at, uh, at a worship service and the kids were like half-heartedly waving the palm branches. This is a, a glimpse into my personality and I thought, 
they could use some help. So I like went up there and me and some of my friends and we helped the kids do a little parade around the whole church and it was a ton of fun and we got swept up in it and it was this beautiful occasion. Um, For me, however, there was one Palm Sunday that stands out the most. Um, Back in 2009, I found myself, that's not really, it's not like I found myself, I was in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And I got to walk down from the Mount of Olives, past the guards, and enter the east gate of Jerusalem. It was electric. Um, I pictured Jesus um, with a similar crowd, with similar fanfare, with similar excitement, with guards as well there. I pictured Jesus weeping over that city, and I pictured Jesus weeping over this city and weeping over this city even still, and weeping over all the cities of this world. Jesus longing for all the cities to live and operate in the way of the kingdom and to know his truth that would bring peace. But this event, it was electrifying. It it was contagious. It was inspirational. It was helpful. As we sang together, I have, we'll see if it works, Um, my phone was teeny, there's an audio that's attached to this, there it is, yeah, it was 10 seconds long, my (laughs) batteries and and memory cards back then, they didn't last so long, Um, but it was contagious, that was so pathetic, (laughs) oh, Yep. Okay. Um, But it was so good. Um, It was so good to be there. It was so beautiful. But it was also a bit heartbreaking, too, to, to feel that tension of Palm Sunday. But the invitation to worship was clear. Now, each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single gospel accounts this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they all approach it with a slightly unique perspective, which is beautiful. And what I love about the New Testament and what I love about the Gospels is that each Gospel sees Jesus and is trying to help the reader understand an element of the character and nature of God and Jesus from a different angle. Same stories, slightly different perspectives. And today's reading from Luke, there is an important exchange Luke 19:39 Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus Teacher rebuke your disciples And his response I tell you he replied If they keep quiet the stones will cry out If they keep quiet the stones will cry out It's so good God will be praised and adored And if if his special creatures, humans, miss the opportunity, even the stones will cry out. God will be glorified no matter what. We have an opportunity to participate in it, but no matter what's going to happen, God will be glorified. It was a beautiful picture. And when Jesus is saying all of this, I'm recalling, and some of you might recall, these Old Testament pictures and songs from prophets and psalmists acknowledging that there's this instinctive 
nature of creation to adore the creator. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Or Psalms 96. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Psalms 150, let everything that has breath, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So as the religious snobs are telling Jesus that he should get his disciples to, you know, quit being so exuberant, Jesus is letting them know that nothing will get in the way of the Father's glory and his worship. And that they should not get in the way of God's people worshiping the Father. A simple question for all of us is, what's getting in the way of you worshiping God? This isn't the first time in the story of Scripture that we see that worshipers have been scorned or rebuked for passionate, heartfelt, God-centered worship. Let's jump back into the Old Testament to one of those fascinating stories. We're not going to spend too much time in it because there's so many layers, but if you want, you can mark it in your Bibles. We're going to 1 Chronicles 15 and then also 2 Samuel 6. But in 1 Chronicles 15, it says this of David. So, all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts and with sounds of ram's horns and trumpets and of cymbals and of playing of lyres and harps. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Now Samuel's intensity is even greater. We see, that, we see this. It says, Wearing a linen ephod, or ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. With all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and of the sound of trumpets. And then later on in verse 20, it says this, that when David returned home to bless his household. So David has just had this beautiful, profound worship experience. He's, he's leading the procession. He's joining with the ark of the covenant. The presence of God is coming into the city just like on Palm Sunday, the presence of God going into the city and he is singing and dancing and there's trumpets and there's music and it is beautiful. And he comes home skipping. I can just see him like with tiptoed excitement being like, home, I just want to bless you. God is so good. And standing there, arms crossed, leaning back, some kind of glare. She says this, 
how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Ouch. <laughs> now, you can tell David's hurt, and he, his humanity speaks through in this next part of the story. David says to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. Uh, all right, yeah. Um, that I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of, I will be honored. I will be held in honor. Now, Despite his little like jab moment of like, yeah, well, you're dad. He, he had it right. It was before the Lord. And when he said, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I'm not going to let some other human, I'm not going to let you diminish my celebration of my king and my God I am going to be a full-bodied human. I'm not going to reserve myself and minimize my praise of God. I'm going to be everything. And David, as we know, was a man after God's own heart. That he somehow understood that anything else other than humans being worshipers of God, it just, wasn't, it just doesn't cut it. That we are called to be unrestrained in our worship and adoration. Now, some of us might actually sort of appreciate Michael's opinion. Now, for many of you, you might silently, quietly appreciate, well, the Pharisees, you know, like they were crazy. They were dancing around. Or, you know, Michael being put off by her husband's dancing. Wives, I'm sure many of you are put off by your husband's dancing. <laughs> Please stop whatever you're doing. Just don't do it. <laughs> um, anyways, I digress. Um, but there, there could be a good instinct, a good desire in the effort for us to, perhaps you've thought, well, I don't, I don't want to raise my hand in worship because I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't want to be a distraction. I don't want to mess with other people. That desire is good. That makes sense. That true worshipers rightly want all eyes to be on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That worship leaders want all eyes to move past them and up to the cross. That true worship is to make much of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We don't want our singing to be a distraction. And so that concern running in the back of some of our minds is understandable. That there might be hesitation to raise hands or kneeling down or movement in worship. However, Biblical authors, the authors, they don't seem to worry too much about drawing attention to the posture of people in the presence of God. They don't seem to worry too much about that. Now, while distraction is not good, Scripture calls people to display the greatness of God. That in God's presence, people fall on their faces in worship. In the presence of God, people raise their hands in worship. In the presence of God, his people bow down in worship. And in the presence of God, his people even dance in worship. 
There are many scriptures that provide all of these as evidence of the call. And for whatever mysterious reason, song, music, rhythm, movement has been built right into us. Singing songs of worship is at the heart of being human. And the sooner we give ourselves permission to let music and song be a vehicle, not the only vehicle, be a vehicle to help us be taken to a place of adoration and thanks, the sooner we will unlock another, another level of our prayer lives. The sooner that, that we allow worship to grow and expand through things like music, the sooner we are able to help improve our prayer life. Now please, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not saying that all of you need to turn into dancing Davids. Just David. Bless you, brother. <laughs> not at all. What I'm saying is that Scripture seems pretty clear, that it seems pretty clear that letting our entire body participate in worship is good and helpful. Jesus did not ask the people to stop. David seemed to understand this. And scripture is filled with the invitation for people to let posture, movement, and voice, and instrumentation display the glory of God, not distract. So why is song and singing helpful? And for those of you that are not into singing and song, you're like, Trent, like what, like a whole sermon about this? Yes, but that's okay. <laughs> Let me be very practical for a moment. Music and singing causes us to participate more fully in the act of adoration and thanksgiving because we are physical creatures. We are souls within a body, right? We are, we are locked up in this. And what is helpful is sometimes our bodies can help drag our hearts and our souls to a place that we want to end up going. We all know that there is a substantial difference between a son saying, Dad, I love you, versus a son running full tilt, crashing in, arms wrapped around being like, Daddy, I love you, I love you, I love you. There's a difference. There's a, we experience, everybody experiences it differently, the child and the father. Singing engages our core, our muscles. We use our lungs differently than when we sit quietly. We start tapping our toes, moving around. It, makes, it, it wakes us up. It, it keeps us awake. If you struggle praying and you're starting to fall asleep, it's a little harder to fall asleep while you're singing a song. Singing brings body and soul together and directs it all towards God. Music gets in us, so why not let this natural occurring event be something that directs our hearts and our minds to the adoration of God? Why not take advantage of this natural resource? Another component, and I'm almost done here, songs are catchy, Right? All I'd need to do is start singing a few words to a song and instantly many of you will recall the entire song. Turn your eyes up. Oh, that was really high. Sorry, guys. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face or blessed assurance. Right? Like, 
All I said was two words, and already you're locked into the next line. Songs are catchy. Melodies last long in our minds. Songs are instinctive. I can appreciate the wisdom of Colossians 3.16, where it says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Uh, philosopher and thinker, uh, Christian thinker James K. A. Smith summarizes this idea of song as the perfect instructive tool. Um, so he says it this way, it is also true that the content of Christians' hymns and songs is a crucial incubator. I think it's a different quote than this one, sorry. That's a good one too. A crucial incubator for Christian faith. Thus, John Wesley famously described hymnody as a body of practical divinity, a sung theology. Because of its nature as a compacted theology, coupled with the way that singing knits a vision into our bodies, song has a catechetical role to play in the formation of our understanding and the emergence of a Christian worldview. Okay, that was a bit deep. Basically, songs are really great at helping us know theology and remember theology and act it out. <laughs> songs are catalysts of emotions. While we are called to engage our minds in adoration, songs help bypass our mental, mental walls and blocks our, and opens things up and allows us to get to the heart. It knocks on our hearts. Music and song unlocks parts of our heart that might lay dormant for who knows how long. One cry, one song can shake us to our core. It can humble us. It can draw us into a place of adoration and thanks that we're unlikely to reach on our own. And then songs help sustain our praise. Like grabbing a wave and riding it all the way into the shore, songs can help us ride adoration and thanksgiving a little bit longer, all the way in. So instead of just a couple of seconds of, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, bless his holy name, done. That can turn into five minutes of praise. Now, all of this can be applied to our personal lives, applied to our personal life of prayer. It can aid in overcoming our consistent inclination to start with ourselves. Grab, grab, grab a hymnal along with your Bible. You know, play two of your favorite worship songs at the beginning of your time of prayer. Songs that are about the character of God. Let the beauty, let the majesty, let the holiness of God grab our hearts and move us along. Let those songs unlock adoration and sustain our life of prayer. Now, it can also be applied to us here today and now as a community and as a congregation who weekly are invited to come and worship the King. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Um, if, can I, I'm just going to get really honest with, for, about myself for a second here, as well as for many of us. A couple of years ago, 
um, I was in Australia visiting family, and I was just, I was excited. I was on fire to come home and enter into a place of, of, of engagement with the Lord. And I had set it up in my mind that for my birthday, I was going to actually have a worship night. I was going to invite, I was going to invite friends over, and we were going to just worship the Lord. That's what I wanted to do for my birthday. Um, and then COVID made us not do that. Yep, it happened. Um, and so all of that got shut down, and then that was like the beginning of, of this slow distancing and disconnection from full-hearted, full-bodied worship. Um, it wasn't on purpose, but it just happened, right? We put the masks on and we sang with less conviction. We became more timid. We were supposed to, and it was right for us to make distance from one another, trying to keep each other safe. But as we spread out, we felt disconnected. It didn't feel as energetic and as engaging in worship. And for the last three years, we've trained ourselves to be less free. And at least, I can't speak for everyone, it's true for me. I catch myself waiting for everyone else to carry me along in worship, not wanting to be the first worshiper, not being the first one to stand, the first one to kneel, the first one to raise my hands, the first one to sing loudly. We found ourselves, all of, all of Christian culture has found themselves a little bit more timid. And as we conclude our sermon series on the life of prayer and abiding, my encouragement for us is at the beginning of our prayer time, at the beginning of our prayer life, that we would allow worship and even singing to capture our hearts for adoration. And we'll end this service singing a song as we always do. The same invitation we've always had to sing to the Lord, to sing with all of our hearts. And you know what? Even if those, the words don't seem true, that's what's beautiful. The whole community is leading us together to a place to the Father. Would you stand? Would we sing? Let's sing to our Lord.